Well, good evening, everyone. Good to have some visitors here tonight. Make sure you make them feel welcome afterwards. Am I coming through two microphones? Okay. All right, Elliot's passing out handouts, and so if you want to fill in blanks as you go, you're welcome to do that. You don't have to, though. I find it helpful when I'm listening to have something on the screen or something in my hand to write with. We were given, a few of us, at a conference recently, uh, the Preacher's Bible. I'm not holding it right now. I still feel like David in King Saul's armor, where it's just not tested. I have it on my desk. I'm breaking it in, but I just can't lift it up yet to bring it to church. It's a very big Bible, using the one I've been using for the last couple of years. Uh, before we go any further, let me pray, because this is a significant passage of Scripture, and I want to get it right, and I want us all to apply it to our hearts. So let's pray once more. Father, we, we love you. We thank you for the day you've given us. We thank you for this morning and what we were able to hear from your word, and Lord, worshiping you together in the songs and in the Scripture reading and in prayer time and in listening to your word. Pray, the Lord, that tonight we'll be edified again, that we built up in the faith, Lord. Pray that if people have come who don't know Christ, I pray, Lord, that they'll meet him tonight and that they'll see him on the pages of Scripture, Lord, see what he's done for us. Lord, see that he has, this, he has provided the solution for our sin, provided the solution for eternity, for eternal life. Lord, we do love you. We do ask for your help now to be accurate, to be clear, and to have hearts that are devoted to you and to your son. And we pray this in his name. Amen. The question I want to start with is, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? That implies two things. When I ask that kind of question, it implies that Jesus, number one, did die. And it also implies that he had to die. Those are both actually biblical truths. But the Son of God dying, that is an impossible thought for many people. Muslims say that's blasphemous. God's not going to die. Secular society thinks it's cosmic child abuse. Um, Just this past week, someone I was trying to share a tract with, he kept walking past me, got about 10, 15 feet away, and he looked back and said, said, I wouldn't have let my son die on the cross. I would have taken his place for him, as if. He knew better. To unbelieving Jews, a crucified Messiah is a major stumbling block, something they cannot accept. To the Gentiles, to the rest of the world, it's what? It's foolishness. But he did die. But could there have been another way? Could he have done it another way? Don't answer out loud. Last week I heard I did too many trick questions. Don't answer this one out loud. Could he have done it another way? We could entertain all kinds of theoretical possibilities, all kinds of hypothetical situations, couldn't we? For ways that God maybe could have saved us. Couldn't he have just left us to ourselves, left us in our misery, let us die in our sin? Again, don't answer these out loud just yet. Maybe Christ could have come in the first century. He could have exterminated everyone who didn't follow him. He could have wiped out everyone and just let the people who loved him set up his kingdom and everything would have been just right. Maybe, rewinding in history, maybe he could have held off giving the Ten Commandments. And that way, you know, if there's no laws and there's no outlaws, right? Maybe he could have not commanded Noah to build the ark and just wiped out the whole human race in Noah's day. 
Maybe God could have not just created us at all. And we wouldn't have had to worry about any of these things that we're facing today. The job of theologians, the job of preachers, the job of every Christian is not to deal with theoreticals, with hypothetical situations. It is our job to deal with what God has told us right here. God could not have done it any of those ways because he did not sovereignly plan it any of those ways. Under his perfect plan, this is what had to happen. You say that's circular reasoning. Say it's not circular reasoning, and we'll see why, because he planned the best way. It was the best way of saving us. And I hope you see in this passage his wisdom as we study this word. Tonight we're going to talk a lot about blood. Some of you, who, who has a red-letter Bible? Who has a red-letter Bible? I had one in college and when, I was a, when I was a kid. Raise your hand. Any, any red-letter Bibles you know what I'm talking about? What's a, what's a red-letter Bible when Jesus' words are in red? You could distinguish them from the rest of the text. Those are fine. Tonight, we're going to be turning to the red pages of the Bible. The red pages of the Bible. There's passages in Leviticus. There's passages in Exodus. There's passages in the Gospels and in Hebrews that are drenched in blood, dripping red. Here's another important question for us to ask. What does blood mean? If blood is all that's required, why couldn't have Christ stepped up to the cross, slid his hand open, and dripped blood on the cross? Why couldn't that have worked? Is there some kind of magical or mystical element inside of Christ's blood that caused it to happen? That's not the case. He had blood just like you and and I do. He was fully God, fully man, but in his humanity, he had flesh and blood just like us. Here's the main thing I want you to get is that the point we're trying to establish here at the very beginning to be very clear is that in this passage, blood means death. Simple. Blood means death. The next question we want to answer as we go through this text is what did the shedding of Christ's blood accomplish? What did it accomplish? What did it do when he shed his blood? I've titled tonight's passage, as you can see, the blood of the covenants. I put it that way because this passage tells us that it is the blood of Christ that both satisfies the demands of the old covenant and it ushers in a new covenant. Christ's blood has paid the payment for the sins of the old and has ushered in the new. It provides eternal forgiveness for everyone who's part of the new covenant. Now I want you to look down closely at verse 15. We've already read it. But in verse 15, this is going to be our main verse for tonight as we look at this whole passage. This is the key statement. This is the thesis statement. This is the main proposition for this whole paragraph. And really for the rest of uh, chapter 9. Look at verse 15. It says, For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. We're going to look at three points tonight, and all three are going to come out of this particular sentence right here in verse 15. Uh, someone recently asked me, I really can't remember, I wish I could remember who it was. I don't think it was anyone at this church, and actually I know it wasn't. I was out and about, and they said, at your church, do you guys always, they're kind of skeptical. They said, do you guys always have to use three points when you preach a sermon? As if to say that's what they've only heard is three-point sermons. And uh, you've seen that many times, that's what we're going to do tonight. I think we saw it this morning, too. Um, so if at, if at church, if someone says, oh, the preacher, he's, he's going for the extra point, 
It doesn't mean he's going for a field goal. It means he's going to preach a four-point sermon. So a couple weeks ago, I had two points. Mike had seven points a couple weeks ago. Um, as my dad says, he says, every reads everything to sports, which is cool to understand things. He says, you have to take what the defense gives you. That's, that's what we do with the Word of God. What the Word of God says, we go with that. If there's one point, we do one point. If there's two, we do two. If there's seven, we do seven. If there's 17, then one would come. There's no point quota, though. But let's look at the first one. What did Christ's blood accomplish? Uh-oh. Okay, you got papers. I'm gonna, I'll try this every now and then. It's not clicking through. Poor Jeremy this morning. That was a... <laughs> There it goes. Got it. I trust you guys. I'm going to put this away. Number one, Christ's shed blood seats him as mediator of the new covenant. Christ's shed blood it seats him as the mediator of the new covenant. We see it in the first part of verse 15. Look at that part of the verse again. It says, for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant. And the first thing I want you to notice here is the depth of the cleansing power of Christ's blood. It's depth. The first words of this verse are what? For this reason. What reason is he talking about? He's talking about something that he's about to say. Is he talking about something that he has already said? What's he, what's he getting at? He's pointing right back to where we talked about last week, verses four, 11 through 14. There we learned last week the old covenant sacrifices. Could they ever clean people truly on the inside? They couldn't do that. They could make them ceremonially clean on the outside, but they can never cleanse the conscience. They never could go that deep and cleanse the conscience before God. It was only skin deep. And those verses also argued from the lesser to the greater. Remember what the lesser was last time? That was, if the blood of bulls and goats, if those could clean you on the outside, then the greater, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That was the argument we saw last week. Christ didn't sacrifice the blood of animals. He didn't go into an earthly tabernacle. He offered the perfect sacrifice, and it was the work of the Trinity. It was God the Son offering his own blood, not the blood of animals. He did it through God the Holy Spirit, and it was offered to God the Father. It was only the sacrifice that's going to liberate our conscience from dead works so that we can freely and legitimately and truly serve the living God. It's the only way. Because Christ's sacrifice doesn't just deal with the outside, because it deals with us on the inside. Because of this, he says, for this reason, he's the mediator of an entirely new covenant, a better covenant. Something entirely different from the old. He's the only one qualified to be the mediator of a better covenant. He's uniquely qualified to be the high priest of a new covenant. Because he could deal with things in the depth and the inside. Now notice also the defining characteristic of a mediator. What's a mediator? Someone who steps in between two parties, right? Someone who goes in, tries to settle an argument, tries to settle a disagreement, tries to help people reach a common goal. I think this is the primary job of a parent, if you have more than one kid. How many of you kids, when you argue together, have a disagreement about a toy or something, how many of you settle it on your own and say, okay, okay, all right, you can play with it, Tomorrow, and I'll play with it today. And they say, okay, that's very reasonable. And no parent has to get involved. No, it's the job of the parent to come in as the mediator and, and fix things, set things right, step in. In Bible times, Moses, he was a mediator. Exodus 33 says, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. 
just as a man speaks to his friend. And then what would Moses do? Moses would speak to the Lord on Mount Sinai, then he would go down and he would speak with the people of Israel. He would deliver God's law to the people. The people would complain to Moses. And then Moses would take their complaints to God. And then Moses would pray for the people. He led the people. He made sure they were fed. He would intercede for them when God wanted to destroy them, which happened several times. Moses is a great picture of a mediator, someone who would go between God and man. But Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as we've already learned in Hebrews. Mediator. We saw the same word back in chapter 8 a few weeks ago, where it says in verse 6, Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Jesus is that only one who can truly bridge the gap between God and man. First Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, any of that, is any of that new information to any of you? Probably really isn't new information to you. One thing we need to think more carefully about here is why do we need a mediator? And that's what we're going to answer in this next section. Number two, Christ shed blood settles the terms of the old covenant. See, I didn't touch anything. I just moved. It settles the term of the old covenant. We saw in verses 11 through 14, in the beginning of verse 15, that the blood of Christ is what brought in the new covenant. Now we're going to see the other side of the coin, that he died to settle the terms of the old covenant, the covenant that had been broken. When Christ came in, did he just set aside the law of Moses? Did he ignore it? Did he start a rebellion to go against it and to rise up? No, he satisfied it. He fulfilled it. Because that old covenant, you see, was transgressed. The old covenant was transgressed. Look back at verse 15. It says, a death has taken place for what? For the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Transgression. To step over a boundary line. To cross over what you were not told to cross. When I worked at Bible camp, summer camps, um, there was a game room. And in this game room, there was this game called carpet ball. Anyone heard of the carpet ball? It's this heavy pool balls that you use, throw them back and forth. It can be dangerous if you're a spectator. So they drew this yellow line in the pavement in front of it, and they said, always stay behind the yellow line. And if you have a bunch of kids in a group, what do they do? They get right up to the line, and after a few minutes, they step over the line, and then the count starts to come in and blow the whistle so no one gets hurt. That's exactly what's happening here with the covenant that's been transgressed. They crossed over the line. They did exactly what God told them not to do. They didn't stay behind the old line. They transgressed it immediately after it was set up. The Israelites transgressed the covenant when they made the golden calf. They transgressed the covenant when they demanded a king. King David transgressed the covenant when he took Bathsheba for his own and had Uriah killed. King Solomon transgressed the covenant when he chased after all the gods and the nations. Israel and Judah transgressed the covenant by their idolatry before the exile. They transgressed the covenant during the exile. They transgressed the covenant after the exile. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene in the first century, they were still transgressing the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament books are a history of repeated offenses against the Old Covenant. Repeated offenses against the Mosaic Law. And as Jeremy Bustle, he reminded us again this morning... Is the standard of God's law the right direction? 
just doing things as best as you can. The standard of God's law is it's perfection. It's absolute perfection. We've all fallen short of that standard. We've all fallen sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is why Jesus died, to pay for those transgressions committed under the old covenant. But our question still is not fully answered. Why blood? Why does it have to be blood? Notice in verses 16 and 17, broken covenants require blood. Broken covenants require blood. Here's a couple tricky verses. We're going to have to lean in, see what's going on. Let's read, the te- let's read these verses, 16 and 17. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when it's dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Okay, I'm going to do a translation roll call. Who's using the ESV? And this is not to shame anybody. I just want to get an idea. Who's using the ESV? Who's using King James Version? Okay. Uh, New King James? NASB? New American Standard Bible? Okay. Who's not using a Bible at all? You don't have to raise your hand. All right, if you have the ESV or the KJV, what does it say? It says when there is a will, right? Or a testament as the King James will put it. And when there's a will, there's a... Okay, got it. Behind this translation is a view that the author is now moving to an illustration of human wills and testaments. Your, your last living will and testament. And this makes sense to a degree. You know, you don't get your inheritance until the person who's put it in his will passes away, right? That makes sense, doesn't it? person passes away, then you get the will. You don't just take it from under his nose, right? Well, some people try. But the difficulty with that view is this Greek word, as we're looking at the, what's the original Greek language behind this English text, is that it's the same word being used all over Hebrews, and that is the word for covenant. It's the same word. I'll tell you the word. It's diatheke, and we'll, we'll, keep, we'll use that word a couple more times. But then they say, well, okay, whenever there's a, a foreign word, you can use multiple English tra- uh, translations to use to, to translate that word, right? And that's possible. Spanish word, you might be able to use more than one English word to translate it. That, that's right. And that's true. That's possible. And context will determine it. But I don't believe there's enough evidence in the context right here to say that it should be translated will or testament. It should be translated covenant. And here's the proof. It's the most consistent and plain translation. You see it all over Hebrews. Don't turn these verses, but I'll just read them off quickly. Back in chapter 8, verse 6. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, diatheke. Verse 8, I will effect a new covenant, same word. Verse 9, they did not continue in my covenant. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with them. Chapter 9, verse 4, it's the ark of the covenant, same word. Get to verse 15 where we just were. He is the mediator of a new covenant. Verse 15, it's used again. Transgressions committed under the first covenant. And I skipped several references so when you get to verse 16, is there any good reason to translate that anything other than covenant? Should it still be covenant. And in biblical history, and here's where it's going to start to make more sense. In biblical history, these significant covenants between God and man, like the ones we're talking about, like the old and the Abrahamic covenant, they required what? Blood. These covenants required blood. Can you think of any examples? Just named one. Abrahamic covenant, God's promise that he made to Abraham starting back in Genesis chapter 12. And turn back to Genesis 15 so you can see what we're talking about. God reiterated the promise to Abraham. And then you get to verse 8. 
Genesis 15, verse 8. Moses said, O Lord, or Abram said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Possess the, the land, possess the promise you're talking about. Verse 9. So he said to them, said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all so he brought animals. Then he brought all these to him, and what did he do? Cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, it was as if to say, may I be like these animals, these dead animals, cut in two, if I don't fulfill my part of the bargain, if I do not keep this covenant with you. You don't have to turn there either, but you can also be turning to Jeremiah 34. But Psalm 50, verse 5 says, God says, gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Jeremiah 34, verse, eight, or verse 18 Go and look there. God says, I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts, sacrifice. Jeremiah 34, 19. The officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, what is he going to give them? I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life, and their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. Broken covenants require blood. Doesn't mean that every single covenant back in the ancient Near East used blood, but these significant covenants that we're talking about in context did. This is so important to bring out because we're talking about how serious the terms of these covenants were. It wasn't just a weak promise or a vague commitment to something. It was a matter of life and death. So the illustration here is not that Christ had to pass away so we could get the inheritance. The illustration is that a covenant had been broken, and that required blood. And that's why this is such a significant thing. But the verse goes on to clarify. This passage goes on to clarify what we're talking about. It tells us specifically what covenant we're talking about, what covenant has been broken. In verse 18 through 22, we'll see that the old covenant requires blood. Look at verse 18. Therefore, even the first covenant, talking about the old covenant, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. In verses 19 through 21, we see the old covenant affirmed with that first generation of people who came out of Egypt. Remember the Exodus? The Israelites were there in captivity, and the Lord brought them out, and there was this first generation. And God gave those Ten Commandments to that first generation, and we see a rehearsal of that in verse 19. Look down at verse 19. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people, according to the law, what did he do? He took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. Again, we're in the red pages of the Bible. There's blood all over the place. This is a summary of what happened in Exodus 24. And you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 24, verse 7, Moses took the book of the covenant, and they read it. He read it in the hearing of the people. He was very clear, very clear in the instructions. They heard it, 
how did they respond? And you know this phrase. They said to Moses, all that the Lord has spoken, we're going to do it. We will do. And we, and they didn't just stop there. They said, and we will be obedient. We're going to keep the terms of the covenant. We're going to do it. After all this blood. And then he spoke the same types of things to the second generation as they were about to go into the promised land. And this is the context we were in this morning with Jeremy in Deuteronomy. Going back, turn back to Deuteronomy 26. This is when Moses repeated the law and its requirements to the second generation. Deuteronomy 26, verse 17, Israel made a declaration about what they were going to do. It says, you have declared today, you have today declared the Lord to be your God, and that you would walk in his ways, and you'd keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and listen to his voice. You've declared it. That's what you're going to do. It's what you said you're going to do. Verse 18, the Lord also made a declaration. The Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession, as he promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments. And this will be the blessing for the obedience. Verse 19, and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made for praise, fame, and honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. Now look down at chapter 27, verse 9, Deuteronomy. Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. You have to obey. You have to do it. There's going to be a curse if they disobey. Look at verse 26, same chapter. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law. And how would they confirm them? Just by saying yes? No, they would confirm them by doing them. And all the people shall say, and all God's people said, they said amen. We agree. It's true. We accept the curse if we disobey. Israel invoked a curse upon themselves when they disobeyed the Mosaic Covenant. They accepted the curse. These command, these old, this old covenant, all these, co these covenants we're talking about, the, the commands, obedience, disobedience, blessing, curse. That's how most things in life are structured. Study hard, you get a good grade, usually. If you don't study hard, you get a bad grade. If you work hard, you get a paycheck. If you don't work hard, you don't get paid, et cetera. That's how life is. Commands, obedience, disobedience, blessing, curse. But are we dealing with something on the human level here? We're dealing with something far more important, far more serious. This is the covenant between God and man. God gave his commands to Israel. They pledged to obey. They accepted the terms that would be blessing. They accepted the terms that there would be curse for disobedience. And we are not exempt just because we are good at keeping some or maybe even a lot of the law. James 2.10, forever keeps the whole law. He stumbles at one point. He's become guilty of all. What about the rich young ruler? He said, hey, I've kept all these things since I was a little boy. Jesus said, one thing you still lack, sell all your possessions. Duty, demands, obligation. This is all we've talked about so far. Where is the grace? Is there any grace in any of this? Where do we find grace? The way we answer that question will fundamentally shape your view of the gospel. We have to get this point right. Some people, they imply grace comes from God doing what? Just overlooking sin. 
So not taking notice of it. Just pretending like it's not there. That's how many, many people think that God is showing us his grace. Just covering it up, pretending it's not there. Or they say that his grace overrides any anger that he might have over our sin. I've shared this uh, story with some of you before, but the uh, PCUSA, a particular church, they wanted to take the phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied out of a particular hymn. That's the hymn, In Christ Alone. It says, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they, before they put it into their new hymnal, they wanted to take that phrase out and they wanted to replace it with the words, the love of God was magnified, which is poetic, but they're still taking something very key out of the message of the gospel. And guess what? The, the writers of the song, Stuart uh, Townend and Keith Getty, they said no. And so the committee that were making the hymnal, they decided to take it out from their hymnal completely. And I also found something this week. It's a teaching associated with newchurch.org, which I found two problems with it right away. One, there's nothing new in it. And secondly, they weren't a church, but it's all based on this 16th, uh, 17th century theologian. And here's what his teaching says. This is not what we endorse in this church, but here's what the quote was. The Bible never says that Jesus, by his death, saved us from God's punishment or penalty for sin. They said, the Bible never says that God has saved us from his punishment or penalty from sin. They said it just has to do with the powers of hell and things like that. I don't usually like to get into polemics and to bring up all the problems in the world and all the problems with theology all over the place because you spend all your time doing that, you never get edified. But we need to be very clear on this point because the vast majority of the people in the world and in many local churches, they do not understand this most fundamental aspect of the gospel. But where does the grace come from? How does God show us his grace in this context of all this blood? A perfect blood sacrifice given to God is what is required. This brings us to verse 22. Look down to verse 22. It says, And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It's impossible. No forgiveness outside of the shedding of God's, the Son's blood. So could there have been another way? According to Scripture, no. One way, and that's through Christ. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Galatians 3.10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written in the Old Testament, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And Christ has met these terms. This is why Christ, before his death, before his suffering, before his crucifixion, he can be with his disciples and do the Lord's Supper and say what? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There's a great hymn that has this verse in it. It says, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt, guilt may estimate. How do we estimate how serious sin is? It says, Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Who's bearing the load? Who's bearing our guilt? Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man, son of God. That's who's bearing our load. That who is who's bearing our curse. The death of Christ satisfies the broken terms 
of the Old Covenant. Finally, number three, Christ's shed blood secures the promise of our eternal inheritance. It secures the promise of our eternal inheritance in verse 15, the end of it. Rewind back and show where we were back in verse 15 with our main thesis statement in that verse. Look back at the beginning of it. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Why? Look at the key words, so that. So that what could happen? So that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. This verse is here to tell us how we can be sure that the promise of an eternal inheritance is secure, that it's not going anywhere, that it's firm, that it's fixed. Biblical Christians care about the past, the present, and the future. We have to care about all those things. Leaving just one of those things out will cause and has caused many problems with misunderstanding what the Bible says, misunderstanding what the Christian life is about. Liberal theology is always working on reconstructing the past or ignoring the past. Universalism de-emphasizes the present, just telling us that everything's going to work out in the end somehow. Licentiousness tells us that nothing's really going to happen in the future, so eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die anyway. It doesn't really matter. We have to be concerned about the past, the present, and the future. And as we close, I want you to see three things about this eternal inheritance and the promise of it. The promise is rooted in the past. It's rooted in the past through covenant. Have you ever wondered why having a covenant is so important? Why we needed a covenant in the first place? The Bible's always talking about covenants. Why? Why do we need a covenant? Why did God set it up that way? It's important to know that Christ, did he set an expiration date on his atonement? Say, well, if you don't take advantage of it by this year, it's going away. No, he didn't set an expiration date on it. How do we know that? It's because his atonement is bound up in an eternal covenant, in a covenant, a covenant that's going to last into eternity. Having a covenant is a good thing. It's a very good thing. I want you to listen close, closely to this uh, quote I'm going to give you. It says, this concept of having a covenant is a product of theology without which no religion can maintain or propagate itself. Because religious experiences which cannot be evaluated theologically, what happens to them? Pass away with time. Ensuing generations, however, have always to reckon with concepts which crystallize out of decisive experiences and preserve the element of truth in them. I wanted to say that carefully and closely. The point we're trying to get at is if it's not based on covenant, if it's not based on a, a real event, if it's not based on a real decision of God, something that actually happened, then it's not going to get transferred anywhere. We're not going to have really any hope. Something that had to do with people in the first century, but... What about 2,000 years later? Why would it make any difference to us? It's based on something. What makes a church doctrinally weak? I hear this all the time. They say, oh, churches are doctrinally weak. Churches are doctrinally anemic. People are always saying that. But what makes them weak? What could make our church weak doctrinally? could be if we're always looking to base our church, base our ministry on things that are shifting, things that are temporary. could be the search for an experience, a heightened experience. Be based on our appealing to our sentiment. Be based on we could base it on something very good. We could base it on relationships. Base it on money. Base it on making promises to take people's problems away now. 
or basing it on always searching for the latest trends. That's what can make a church doctrinally because it, biblical, biblical Christianity is based on an event, something that happened, something that Christ did, a decision God made to establish an eternal covenant. And it's not just any covenant, it's the new covenant. Why is it important? It's a new covenant. It's not the old because Christ has already met the terms. Christ has already met the terms of the new covenant. He already made the, the payment. He already set it in motion. And those who put their faith in Christ receive the benefit of it. It's a better covenant because it's been established on better promises. It's rooted in the past also through calling. Who is this promise for? What does the verse say? Who is this promise made to? It says, for those who have been called. In Scripture, there's a general call to the, all the ends of the earth. God says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. But there's also an effectual call, a call that does something. All that the Father gives me will come to me. This promise is for God's chosen people, made up from people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's rooted in the past through calling, a calling that God has established in eternity past. This promise gives us hope in the present, hope now. Last week, every day of the week, I had pretty bad neck pain. Someone at this church tricked me into doing a race. And, man, that made my neck sore. No, it was a lot of fun. I'm not going to have a hard time anymore. <laughs> well, maybe I will. But uh, every day of last week, my neck was in pain. And always a reminder, wow, this hurts, this hurts, this hurts. We go our whole lives trying and waiting for problems to be resolved. We're always in search of peace. We're always in search of rest. Our aches and pains and problems, get this, all of our frustrations that we experience on an everyday basis, they're like a microcosm of the Christian life, aren't they? It's like those little experiences that we have every day. It's like a little illustration of what the whole Christian life is like. That's why I love that song we sang this morning. I ask the Lord that I might grow. Most of that song is really just a prayer to God, isn't it? praying to God, just saying what, what the person had asked for, and then not seeing the things happen the way we expect, and then going into despair, and you see that progression. In the last verse of that song, the Lord responds. And this is what God's always trying to teach us. He's saying, these inward trials I employ. Why am I doing them? From self and pride to set thee free, and break thy schemes of earthly joys, that thou mayst find thine all in me. We have hope in the present. And this promise will be finalized in the future. What's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? Now, when I was a little boy, I remember thinking about this, this concept. I remember asking my parents, asking people in the church, what's heaven going to be like? And they would always say something, which, which was true. They would say something like, you're worshiping God forever. I knew at that point that saying, well, that sounds a little boring. I knew that was the wrong answer, but I still wasn't positive that that was the best way to spend all of eternity by worshiping Christ, by worshiping God. The problems that we face today are teaching us something. They're teaching us how to enjoy God. First Peter 5, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect Confirm, strengthen, establish you. And then to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Because of the shed blood of Christ, we have the promise 
Our promise is secure, secure for an eternal inheritance. And one day Christ is going to come, one day he's going to set everything right, and he will be our inheritance. He will be all that we desire. We're not going to worry about being bored in heaven. He's going to be all that we want, all that we need. So why did Christ have to die? Why did he have to shed his blood? He did it so he could become the mediator of a better covenant, a new covenant. He has taken care also of the requirements of the old covenant. He has guaranteed us a future hope. His plan for redemption was the perfect plan. It was the perfect way to show us what true justice looks like. It was the perfect way to show us what true love looks like. It was the perfect way to show us what grace is really like and why grace matters. It was the perfect way for him to show us his glory. It was the perfect way to teach us how that we can enjoy him forever. So let's go to him in a time of prayer now. I pray that these truths will not be something that we just leave inside our heads, but that they'll sink it down into our hearts and that we'll be influencing the way we live this week. Let's go to him in a time of prayer. Lord, we again tell you that we love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We do thank you for how it transforms our mind, how it renews us. Lord, how it points us back to, to you, points us back to our only hope. Lord, I pray that we would not get sidetracked this week, Lord, that we'd be fixed on the hope that is set before us. Lord, that we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is our pioneer, who's already gone ahead. Lord, I pray that we would give you the glory this week, and I pray that we would acknowledge you in everything that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.